Ordinary objects being put to uh, significant use, that's what this series is all about. Again, my name is Dion, I want to welcome you, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online today too. Uh, you know, as we, as we start this series, or as we're in this series, as we start this message today, uh, thinking about ordinary people, I, I've been thinking this week about a story that I grew up hearing. It's a story about, actually about my dad when he was, uh, when he was a kid. And um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a harsh story, but uh, it has a good ending, don't worry. Um, my dad, when he was about 13 or 14, decided to play a prank on his older sister. Um, and like only a 13 or 14-year-old boy can think of, he concocted this, this really, really, really bad idea. And the, uh, the idea was is that he was going to go out into the yard, and this big tree in the yard, and he was going to, to pretend to hang himself so that it would rattle his older sister. Now, this is a really, really bad idea, right? I mean, I don't know why you would do that anyway, but, um, but as, he, as he set out this plan of trying to pretend to hang himself, something went wrong in how he did it, and he actually ended up hanging himself. And uh, my, my aunt, his older sister, saw, you know, according to his plan, but not at all according to his plan, and she called for help right away, and, um, and a neighbor came over, and they got him down, and at this point, my dad was lifeless. He was without breath. Uh, they assumed he was gone, but this neighbor, this next door neighbor, began doing CPR and uh, mouth to mouth on my dad, and um, even you know for minutes, for minutes, and even after people were like, "No, it's he's gone, he's he's done," writing my dad off as dead. This man would not stop, and finally, uh, he was able to revive my dad. Now I, I think about that story. You know, here's an ordinary guy who did something not very ordinary, but something quite extraordinary. And because of that, I'm here, my kids are here. You know, he brought my dad back from, from death, literally. But I've often wondered in my life, you know, if I encountered a situation like that, would, would I have the courage, the wits, the determination to do the same? See, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I would. I just am not sure that my mind would work in that way. I'm not sure that I'm that... Heroic. And I think what happens so often when we talk about ordinary people, we tie in this idea that ordinary people do extraordinary things. And, and what about the rest of us who, who maybe aren't all that capable of things that are extraordinary or heroic, running into burning buildings or, or uh, performing CPR on someone tirelessly until you revive them? What about the rest of us? Are we just doomed to live our life in ordinariness? See, today I want to share a story with you of, of a man. I want you to meet someone who is in a different category of person. He was an ordinary guy who did something ordinary. And uh, I want you to learn more about him because in his ordinariness, doing something ordinary, God actually used it for something extraordinary. Now, this guy's name is Barnabas. I told you about that at the beginning, except Barnabas isn't even actually his name. Here's a, here's a rendering of what Barnabas might have looked like. Of course, there were no cameras back then, so this is just a guess. Um, but Barnabas wasn't even actually his, his name. Uh, his actual name was Joseph of Cyprus. But he got the name Barnabas as a sort of nickname because the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So Joseph of Cyprus became known as Barnabas because he was an encourager, which in my mind means that Joseph of Cyprus, and as I've studied him, this is what I've discovered, that Barnabas was a guy who lived his life after the ampersand. Now, what's an ampersand? It's, it's this thing. It's this symbol, right? The and symbol. And what I mean by this is, is throughout history, there have been some people who have been so great that they just kind of stand alone. Guys like Moses or Jesus or George Washington or Martin Luther or Martin Luther King Jr. or Madonna, you know, someone really great like that. You know, their name just 
stands alone. And then there are other people who are known throughout history, but they're not known because they stand alone. They're known as a famous duo, a, a power couple, a pair. So you have like Adam and Eve, and you have Lewis and Clark, and Simon and Garfunkel. Any Simon and Garfunkel fans here today? Way not in my generation, still love Simon and Garfunkel. Or um, if you grew up in my generation, maybe you grew up watching the show Mork and Mindy, anyone? Uh, Another power couple, Mork and Mindy. Um, have, Have you ever noticed, though, that in a lot of these names, maybe not all of them, in all of these names, the name that comes after the ampersand is often the person that we forget about? They're the lesser known person? So Paul Simon went on, had a great musical career, still does. Art Garfunkel, what happened to that guy? Where is he? Uh, you know, Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams played Mork, the title character Mork, and Robin Williams, you know, had a, had a tremendous career. Mindy, the, one who played, the woman who played Mindy, the last I saw of her, she was doing Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America commercials. Fine organization, but not exactly what you dream for when you're an, when you're an actress, right? So often, the person whose name comes after the ampersand is the person that we forget about. I remember one of the first uh, fights post-marriage that Jocelyn and I had. It's, uh, it was right after we uh, got married, and it came time to, for us to write thank you notes for all of our wedding gifts. And uh, you know how this might work if you're married. You order, like, special thank you note cards, and they look like your invitations. And so we got out the cards, and I looked at the front of one, and, and it said, Jocelyn and Dion. Now, don't you know that the man's name is supposed to come first? No? Well, well, at least D comes before J in the alphabet. Either way, right? I didn't want my name to come after the ampersand and, uh, because cause that's, you know, that's, that's the place of lesser status, lesser position. So often, now, even if you don't buy into this theory, here's what I can say about Barnabas. Barnabas was a guy who lived his life this way. He was always the second name in the list. He was always the guy who was listed after the ampersand. Now, be honest. If that were your life, maybe that is your life, how many of us would feel content living a life like that? Living a life where we don't really stand on our own, we always stand with someone, and we're always the second name in the list. At, at best, knowing that when we're all said, when all is said and done, and, and we're gone, and someone says something about us, they say, man, he or she was a great encourager. If that's all that could be said about you when your life was over, would you be content with that? I know you're dead and you don't really care, but I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? It just seems so small doesn't it? And today what I want to do is I want to challenge our view of ordinariness and extraordinariness by talking about the true value of friendship. Because I think in all of the things that you can do in life, all of the things that you can achieve, all of the things that, uh, that, that you know, people pursue in life, I, I think being a true friend is one of the most significant, one of the most worthwhile, one of the most, it can be one of the most rare and extraordinary things you can do with your life. And today we're going to learn more about that from this guy, Barnabas. But in classic guy after the ampersand fashion, we have to learn about someone else first before we can dive into meeting Barnabas. Uh, We're going to have to look at this guy, Saul or Paul. So uh, for most of the Bible, the only way you ever know about Barnabas is because he's listed in company with Paul. But uh, here, Paul is still called Saul. He kind of has a name change later on in his life. We're going to look at Saul's story. Now, we're going to go to Acts chapter 9, and this is right after Saul has experienced a dramatic conversion. He went from being someone who was a persecutor, he was, he was crusading against the Christian movement, 
and he uh, is turned around and he becomes a guy who is now an advocate for the Christian movement. I think last week Steve Howard called him a terrorist at this point in his life, um, which is accurate. And then he becomes an advocate. And this is right on the heels of his conversion moment. So uh, let's look at Saul first and then we're going to meet Barnabas later. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, Damascus is a city, you know, in the Middle East, outside of, uh, outside of uh, uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of where the movement, the Christian movement is centered or headquartered. And so Damascus is this peripheral place, big city. This is near the place where Saul had his conversion experience. So he stays there along with some of the other Christians um, who were in Damascus. Other, other followers, they weren't called Christians yet. It says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? So understandably, everyone in Damascus has heard about Saul because he is this guy who is working against Christians. And now he's preaching in the name of Jesus and he's met, of course, with suspicion, with distrust, And and why would anyone feel differently? Because here's a guy who was coming to Damascus to arrest people and carry them back to Jerusalem on religious charges. And now he's speaking in favor of Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. See, see in life, people don't do these about-face things very often, do they? I mean, not including presidential candidates in an election year, right? People don't do 180s in life very often, especially not in matters of faith. I mean, I know people who've basically abandoned the faith that they were raised in, and yet they still identify nominally, at least in name, with that faith. Why? Because faith is one of those things that you just don't, you know, you don't make a dramatic conversion very often with faith. And so, uh, you know, it's understandable that the people in Damascus are suspicious of Saul. They would be foolish not to be suspicious. And yet, in spite of their suspicion... Next verse, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, right? This doesn't look good for them. Here's one of their guys who's now turned against them and he's working against their purposes. Jews thought Christians were heretics. They were teaching that someone else was the son of God and and that just seemed heretical to them, especially this Jesus guy. So uh, they, they launched this conspiracy to kill him. He's too effective. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to have an opportunity to kill him. But his followers took him by night Uh, Saul's followers, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Uh, Now, before we go there, so here's here's Saul now, and there's this dramatic turn of events. He was this guy who was persecuting others, trying to kill Christians, and now some of his former companions are trying to do the same to him. Hugely ironic, right? And uh, he has to escape from the city of Damascus, this place that he had been living and preaching, um, some scholars believe for almost three years he had been in this vicinity. And so now he has to leave there. Now in this time 
of being in Damascus after his conversion, Saul had never thought it necessary to go to Jerusalem where the Christian movement was headquartered. He had never found it necessary to go and meet with the leaders of the church. It just didn't seem like it was worthwhile. And plus, there was probably plenty of bad blood between Saul and the Christian leaders because he was the guy trying to arrest them and kill them. And so you might understand that there could be some hostility there. So in about three years of ministry already that Saul has been in, he is not connected with the believers in Jerusalem, but here he is, he's, he's uh, now a marked man, he's got to leave Damascus, fleeing at night by being lowered through a, through a hole in the wall, and, uh, and he finally decides it's time, right? A strong church is a unified church, and so he decides that it's time that he go to Jerusalem and meet with some of the leaders of the church. And, and so he goes there, and it says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there, right? Hey guys, let's talk about Jesus. But they're not buying it. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Again, who can blame them? Now here's where you meet Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, the leaders of the church. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus, Saul had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. You see how this works in Barnabas' life? It's about Saul, 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 Saul. And then finally you meet Barnabas. The only other time you hear about Barnabas in scripture before this is uh, he's recorded as being a guy who sold a field and gave the money to the apostles to fuel the Christian movement. That's the only other reference we have of Barnabas before this point. But when we meet Barnabas again, what is he doing? He swoops in alongside of this friendless, friendless outcast Saul. A guy who doesn't have an advocate or a friend in the world, and he swoops in and he corroborates his story. He says, yeah, something really happened to him on the road to Damascus. And, and then he talks about how powerfully Saul had taught in Damascus for years, you know, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. This, this can't be fake, guys. He introduces Saul to the apostles. In other words, he becomes a friend to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there in life. In a place like that where you are friendless and someone swoops in and becomes your friend. Maybe you've ever uh, had this experience. I, in my uh, junior year of high school, I transferred to a new high school. Have you ever been in that place when you're in a new school at lunchtime and you're standing, everything else is taken care of. You know, they tell you where to sit. They, you know, they tell you what to do at lunchtime. This is like, you know, just feed yourself to the piranhas. Go ahead. Make one wrong move. It's like landmines all over the cafeteria. If you do the wrong thing, you're dead. And so you're standing there with the lunch tray in hand, paralyzed, not sure where to go. And I remember this, the first day of that, that uh, school experience, someone came alongside me, swooped in and said, hey, why don't you come sit with us? <sighs> you been there? Or being new in a neighborhood and a neighbor finally introduces you, uh, introduces themselves to you rather and says, why don't you come over on Saturday night? I'd like you to meet some of the other neighbors who are having a get together. And you're like, oh, thank you. Or being new on a job and someone says, hey, let me show you the ropes, right? You've been there before in life. If you, if you have, I think most of us have, you know how powerful that situation can be. And see, this was Barnabas' thing. This is all Barnabas ever did that we know of in scripture is, is he was a guy who would come alongside someone who needed a friend and he would be a friend to them. 
It seems like such a small thing, and yet it's such a powerful thing. Because here's the thing about true friendship. Here's what a true friend does. A true friend first is someone who will always stand by you. And this is what Barnabas did with his life. Right? He, he would literally stand by a guy like Saul and say, no, 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 you guys don't believe him, but I'm telling you, something happened in his life. When everyone else distances themselves from you, when no one wants to touch you or come near you, a true friend will stand by you. They'll press in. Uh, second, a true friend will speak hard truth to you. There's a time later in their friendship where Paul and Barnabas, they actually, they, they travel around the world together doing Jesus' work, uh, but there's this moment where, where they have this dispute where Paul or Saul doesn't want to give someone a second chance, and Barnabas is kind of like, come on, guy, I gave you a second chance, and he has to speak a hard word to him. See, that's what a true friend does. They'll speak hard truth to you. We talked about this extensively last week, Steve Power did, about intervention. See, so often in your life, you need to hear a word of truth, and no one wants to speak it to you. No one wants to be that guy or that girl. No one wants to get on your bad side. No one wants to experience your wrath. And yet a true friend is someone who will speak that word of, of hard truth. And yet they won't do it from a spirit of judgment or uh, self-righteousness or in a smug manner. Right? They'll do it with the spirit of love, a spirit of concern, a concern for your well-being, for your wholeness. So that's what a true friend does. Thirdly, a true friend is someone who believes in you. See, when I study Barnabas, and, and you can read more about him in the rest of Acts, uh, Acts 15 has a bunch more about him, but um, as you read more about Barnabas, is what you discover that he is a guy who believed in people in his life. He looked at a guy like Saul, whom no one trusted. Everyone said, this guy is dangerous. And Barnabas stood alongside him and said, no, I believe in him. More importantly, he looked at Saul and said, Saul, I believe in you. See, this is what a true friend does. This is what true friendship is. A, a true friend can look at the good that is churning inside of you even when everyone else only sees bad, even when your sinful nature is like, you know, full bloom and just, you know, ugly. And a true friend looks inside of you and says, no, I, I see you're struggling, but, but there's still good there. A true friend looks inside of you and, and they see the potential that God has placed in you even when you are living so far beneath your potential. Am I right? And they call it out. And they say, you're living here right now, but, but I see there's more to you than that. A true friend looks at your heart, a heart that God is recreating, even when everyone else has given up on you. And, and, and they, they see it and they call it out. They confirm a vision that God has for your life, a vision that you may not be able to believe yourself, that no one in your life may believe. A true friend, a true friend, a valuable friend can look inside of you and they can see it before you do. And they can speak it out. They can speak it into reality. A true friend believes in you. I remember back in college when I uh, was first feeling the churning to become a pastor. And I got to tell you, it was one of the weirdest things I ever experienced, this, this pull to become a pastor, because it was not anything I'd ever thought about. I mean, when I was like five-year-old five -year boy sitting in church, one day I you know, liked my pastor, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a pastor. But I also thought at that time about being a race car driver and an astronaut and an ice cream truck driver and, you know, anything else. So it wasn't really a big deal. Uh, and then in college... All of a sudden, I started to think like, maybe, maybe this is what God is calling me to do with my life, to, to uh, become a pastor. And, um, and I struggled with that because I never thought about it. I didn't feel equipped. I didn't feel worthy of it. I, I wasn't even sure what pastors did all week long, right? Join the club because the rest of you are like, it must be nice. I still get people who ask me that. They're like, oh, what do you, what's your real job? And I'm like, just kind of this, right? Um, 
And I remember um, early in those days, I, I, I kind of have to process things verbally. And so I remember talking to some of my friends from high school and some of my new friends from college. And I remember the moments where I would, I would tell them like, hey, yeah. So what, what would you say if I were to tell you that I'm thinking about being a pastor? And do you know that the first five, six, seven people that I told, do you know that the reaction was the same? They all laughed. <laughs> they thought I was joking. Really, they, they did. They were like, hi, seriously. And I'm like, no, seriously. And some of them laughed again, even after I said I was serious. And, and I got it. I mean, it was, it, was not, it was not likely to me either. It seemed laughable to me. Uh, and then I remember I was dating uh, this girl, and we just had started dating. And, um, and she was actually a fairly new Christian, not raised in a church family at all, and was fairly new in her faith. And we were, we were kind of dating, and, and, uh, and I thought, man, if this is going to go anywhere, I was just at this place in my life where I'm like, I, I, I just got to put this out here. And so um, just a few few dates into our relationship, I remember telling her, hey, just so you know, I'm kind of thinking about becoming a pastor. What do you think? Just kind of waited for the laughter, right? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I think you'd be a great pastor. Now for me, I had been waiting for someone to confirm this vision that I felt like God had placed over my life. I, I, I had trouble believing it for myself. And yet I just, I just, I just, man, so hungered to have someone go, yeah, I can see that too. I can see that there's something in you that God could use. I was, I was waiting for that person. So when this girl that I was dating finally did that for me and she said, yeah, I think you'd be a great pastor. You know what I did? I married her. <laughs> Didn't hurt that she was also really pretty and a lot of fun to be around and all the rest. And you know, Jocelyn, she still does this for me. She's, she's one who sees my heart when so many other people misunderstand me, and, uh, and she speaks a word of belief. She confirms a vision that God has spoken over my life that I'm having a hard time hearing. She does it for me, and she does it for her friends. And, and I've got other friends in my life who have done that since then. You know, some of them are my coworkers here, and I'm so grateful for them. See, this is what Barnabas did with his life. Sure, he was the guy who always came after the ampersand. He was never anyone who would stand on his own. He would never be great on his own right, but he was the guy who was constantly a companion to someone else, believing and encouraging, not just advocating or uh, making introductions, but confirming that vision specifically for Saul here that God had for Saul's life before anyone else was willing to see it, before Saul could even fully believe it, I think. Barnabas saw it. He agreed with it. He believed in Saul. Now, how many of you have had someone like that in your life? If you have, uh, their name probably comes right to the top of your mind. I've had several. Um, but, but right now, if there's someone you're thinking of, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to turn to the person around you. I don't want you to share the story. I just want you to say that person's name. Who is a person who believed in you when no one else did Turn to the person next to you and, and say the name and give them a second. Let them say the name back. No stories. Just go ahead. Do that right now. Seriously, turn. I can see you. Turn. I can't see you at home, but you can do this too. Turn to someone there. See, it's powerful when someone does this for us, isn't it? And yet in life, we may value so many other things and we may dream for our lives and, and being a great friend 
probably isn't part of the vision for our life. You know, we're more concerned, concerned about how much money can I make and can I get into that next house and, and you know, what, what position can I work myself up to at work and can we take that vacation? Those are the things that preoccupy us in life. But, but this thing, this simple thing, being the name after the ampersand, being someone who is an encourager, being someone who is a true friend, is there anything in life that, that is so significant? See, isn't this what we're all starving for? I mean, we all work so hard in life. We, we bust our tails and we put ourselves out there and we take risks and we put in long days no matter what we're doing, whether we're a stay-at-home parent, whether we're working in the marketplace, whether we're re- retired, there's plenty of work for us to do. We give our all and at the end of the day, all we want, all we hope for, all we dream is that someone could look inside of us and say, hey, there's some things you did today well, some things you did today not so well, but I see what you're trying to do and God is doing something in you and it's good. To have that word of encouragement spoken into our lives, to have a friend who stands by and speaks hard truth and believes in us, that's powerful, isn't it? Maybe some of you heard in the last uh, week, there was another megachurch pastor who resigned his position, Pete Wilson, um, Cross Point Church in Nashville, just a really respectable church, and uh, his reason was that he's, he's burnt out. He said, I am tired and broken, and I need to find rest. Uh, Steve Howard put a, put a post on Facebook just trying to express support for, for me and other pastors. I think that gave some of you the impression that I'm on the verge of a breakdown, which I don't believe I am. Um, <laughs> Because I'll tell you one thing that I have, even though this is a hard job for me, one thing I have is, is I have people like Steve Hauer and uh, so many others who, who constantly speak to me about their belief in me. Beyond what I believe in myself, they believe in me, and it's life-changing. And see, whether you're a, a leader or whether, you know, whatever your station in life is, don't we all need this? Isn't this what we all long for? Isn't this what we're starved for, a true friend? So I want to ask you, not just have you had someone in your life like that once, but do you have someone in your life like that today? Is there someone who meets this description of what true friendship looks like? See, if not, I, I'm going to challenge you to do something about that. And maybe you need to check out life groups. We'll talk about that later. We used to call them small groups, but they're not really about being small. They're more about doing life together, so we're calling them life groups Uh, life groups now. Uh, Maybe you need to come to Getting Connected tomorrow night. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, So you can find a group of people to intentionally go through life with you, people who can see you and know you and and call out, confirm the vision that God has for your life. It's so powerful. But here's what I want to tell you today, that, that whether or not you feel like you've got someone who does this stuff for you right now, here's what I need you to know. That this, that this is exactly what Jesus wants to do for you. And I know this sounds trite and this sounds empty and it sounds so Sunday school and yet it is profound, it is true, it is life-changing when you realize that Jesus doesn't just want to be your Lord, he doesn't want to be the guy you talk to on Sundays, but Jesus came to earth in order to be this kind of friend to you, to be someone who will always stand by you. When no one else will, he's there and he will never distance himself from you. There's nothing you can do in your life that will make him turn away from you. Nothing, nothing. He's someone who will speak hard truth to you, not to break you, but to challenge you and to give you life and to bring you into wholeness. But he is ultimately someone who believes in you. Now, I know this sounds kind of like psychobabble, but it's true. Do you know that? That Jesus wants to be, he is 
that, that, that being in your life who believes in you and, and you look in your life and you see sin and you see brokenness and you see struggle and you see disappointment and, and you imagine that that's how God must feel about you but God doesn't feel that way about you because Jesus went to the cross. He took that stuff upon himself so that you would never have to experience that. So he, more than anyone, doesn't see you that way. He knows what he did to remove all of that stuff and he looks at you and he sees what the Spirit is doing in your life. He sees the, the calling that God has placed over you that you don't even believe yet and he is speaking words of belief over you. That you are more than your behavior, you are more than your past, you are more than your own perceived sense of ordinariness. I, I wish that, that Christians could get this. That what we have offered to us is so much more than heaven someday. That what Jesus has offered us is friendship with God, a friendship like this. Now, friendships with humans like this are transformative, but, but can you imagine just for a second, can you believe that God himself offers us a relationship like this? He does, and that's what Jesus came to do. So whether or not you feel like you have a human being in your life who does this for you, Jesus does this for you. Although, I'll tell you this, that God has created us for relationship with each other, and he wants you to have this in flesh and blood, too. And so perhaps the greater question for us to deal with today is not, do you have a friend like this in your life? But maybe the greater question is, have you tried to be a friend like this to someone else recently? So I think for most of us, the answer is probably, eh, kinda. Again, why? Because we're so caught up in pursuing other things in life, things that we think will give us an extraordinary life. We're pursuing a, a path to put our name first rather than after the ampersand. And yet I'll tell you that uh, when you live life like Barnabas, when you're willing to take that second chair, when you're willing to be the person who, who does this in someone else's life, it's not only life-changing for them, but it gives you a sense of value and purpose that is extraordinary. So, so today I want to ask you, who is it in your life who needs a friend like this? I know you do, but, but who else in your life needs a friend like this? And are you willing to be that kind of friend? Are you willing to, to reorder your life, repurpose your life, reframe what you think means extraordinariness? To do these very ordinary things that it seems like anyone can do, are you willing to do these things for someone else in your life? See, we here at St. John, we believe that this is life-changing. We put friendship, relationships, right up there with studying your Bible and going to church because we know it's that life-changing. If you haven't seen this before, we talk about four things here that every Christian should do in order to keep moving on their journey, to keep taking steps on their life journey with God uh, closer to, to the wholeness and the fullness that he offers us. And you'll notice right here, the second one in this one one fifteen six is uh, be someone to another person in an intentional relationship. See, sandwiched between going to church and studying your Bible, we've got being a great friend to someone else. But notice how we, we worded this. We didn't say go find someone to be a good friend to you. We said be someone to another person 
in an intentional relationship. See, see if in your life you, you feel like I don't have that kind of friend that we've talked about today, maybe the answer for you is to be that kind of friend to someone else. And if you're willing to make a life being that kind of friend, then you know what? You'll have all the friends, the true friends, that you will ever, ever need. See, I think in life, from the time I was young, I, you know, I, had a, I had a dream, I had a vision for my life. And it would be that, that somehow my name would, would be great, even in a small sense, that I might do something that mattered with my life, that I might be remembered for contributing something noteworthy to the world. I'm beginning to, to understand something about what that might look like. It, it might mean that my name doesn't come first that my name comes second, or maybe my name doesn't show up at all. But I'm beginning to understand that it is anything but ordinary in this day, in this age, to be a true friend. That it is noble, it is significant, it is life-changing for people, and it's also life-changing for you. And so that's going to be my prayer for us today, that uh, we would be those kinds of people people who would rethink extraordinariness and ordinariness and that we would give ourselves to do this very ordinary thing that is life-changing.